Welcome to Nature Centered, a podcast from Wild Birds Unlimited about feeding the birds and enjoying nature right in your own backyard. Here are your hosts, naturalist John Schaust and Brian Cunningham. Hi, everyone. I'm John Schaust. And I am Brian Cunningham. And welcome to episode 27, Hummingbirds and Orioles, a really sweet deal. I'm excited about this episode, John. Hummingbirds and Orioles, you know, a really sweet deal. Yes, they are a really sweet deal. It's springtime. They're getting ready to come back. Some places are already back. And we want to talk about some of those today. Some of those different hummingbirds, some of those different Orioles, because not everyone has the same ones that are all the listeners (laughs) across all the places where people live. Yeah. It is absolutely that time of the year when things every single day, something pops and happens in your backyard. And boy, it doesn't get much better when those Orioles and that first hummingbird of the year show up in your yard. Yeah, we our very first episode, we did hummingbirds, a beast of a bird. And our very second episode was about Orioles. And we really kind of focused on the northern Oriole, which is not called that anymore. It's two species, one in the east, one in the west. But today we're going to break that down a little bit more. Plus, we're going to have some frequently asked questions about nectar feeding for these really sweet deals. So stick around for the fun. Okay, Brian, it's springtime. Lots of cool things happening out in our backyards right now. I know it's been, I've been on vacation for the last uh, 10 days or so. Just got back a couple of days ago. It's always exciting. You come back and voila. You got some new birds and your trees are starting to leaf out even more. So a lot of cool things happening right now. Oh, so many fun things. And spring is always that time of newness. Everything's popping like you're talking about. And not just all this vegetation popping, but now you have more birds moving through the area. And it's always really fun. Who's new? And mm-hmm. we've, we've been talking about sharing you know, what's been happening in our yards or what we're hearing across the U.S. and Canada. And I've had some really neat birds coming through. Really enjoying watching the sparrows as they move north and watching all of the different nesting activity, the mating activity of these birds mm-hmm. as they're, they're trying to attract one another and really super cool. Love the hairy woodpeckers. And today we had a male and female hairy woodpecker doing some mating rituals. <gasps> and they, <laughs> they were, it was more, I should say, courting rituals, but that's super cool. Cause they're doing it at my yard. They, one of them was visiting the feeder and my wife caught some video of, them, uh, the male came in and they were trying, he was kind of chasing around. She's like, I don't know about you, <laughs> but it's really neat to watch all of these activities. Yeah. But I'm getting ready. These nectar feeding birds coming back. It is so true. Every single day, spend a little time in the backyard, spend a little time in your neighborhood walking around and just see what's going on. Cause mother nature is going to bring a new show to town every single day for the next, probably what month and a half at least. So it's going to be exciting, depending on, again, depending on where you're at. But our main reason for getting excited mm-hmm. right now, and I was hoping maybe <laughs> I before I left to go on vacation, I set up my nectar feeding station in my backyard, which I do every year. And I'm going, obviously, for my Orioles. I'm going for my Orchard Oriole. I'm going for my Baltimore Oriole. I'm going for my hummingbirds. And so I set out my oranges. I get my grape jelly. I get my nectar feeders. And I came back and. Nobody's here yet, so I'm still waiting. 
<laughs> you didn't miss anything, John. I stayed home, covered, you know. Well, the fact that it snowed while I was gone. <laughs> well, and that was interesting. And I know people have questions about that. You get into springtime and you get a, a cold weather event like that or a snow uh, when when you shouldn't be having it yet. It should all be gone, right? And how does that how's that going to affect the birds? And how's that going to affect our nectar feeding birds? It probably puts a little bit more pressure on those birds, especially during migration. So it's really makes your feeder and your nectar feeding uh, attempts a little more important than mm -hmm. it probably has been in the past years because it's going to be a little more in demand, I think, as these birds come through and settle in. All right. Well, let's take the deep dive, Brian. Let's take yes. a look at those hummingbirds. And, and again, you know, we get these questions every single year about how do I bring the hummingbirds to my backyard? And, you know, what do I need to do? And what's that nectar ratio? And, and depending on where you live, which hummingbirds can I expect? You know, those of us in the east, it's it's pretty much the ruby-throated. You got <laughs> yes. a one-trick pony here. It's the yeah. ruby-throated hummingbird. But out west, you know, I, I always equate it. It's kind of like in the in the west you have the chance at multiple hummingbirds at your feeders in some parts of the, in many parts of the West, actually. Oh, Whereas yeah. in the East, we only have one. But we, we get a little better warbler show in the spring than the Western. A few mm -hmm. more species of warblers come through the East than they do on the West. So you're kind of trading. We're trading the warblers <laughs> for the hummingbirds. They get the great hummingbird show out West. We get the great warbler show here in the East. Well, and, and both of them are beautiful. The, the warbler species are beautifully colored. Yeah. And it's just show, very showy, just like the hummingbirds. The hummingbirds are just so beautifully colored and showy. Uh, and it just kind of amazes me when you think about all of the hummingbirds. There's like 325 species of hummingbirds in the world. But to, to, to say the world is kind of a, a misnomer. <laughs> <laughs> Only about what? A quarter of the world? <laughs> uh, North and South America. That's it. 325 species, North and South America. Yeah, let's stop on that for a second, because I, I think that bounces off some people every once in a while. They're not in Europe. They're not in Africa. They're not in New Zealand or Australia or Asia or anywhere else. They are only in North, Central, and South America. That is the total territory of the hummingbird species and, what, 325 different species. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty amazing because they're actually the second as a family, as a group of birds, they're the second largest group of all birds, I think second only to flycatchers yes. in the entire world. And yet they're restricted to North, Central, and South America. Flycatchers are on yeah. pretty much just about every continent. Yeah. Yeah. Different yeah. different species of flycatchers. But yeah, yeah, just but then you get into, okay, let's drill it a little closer to home. Just North America. There are now, only eighteen <laughs> species in just North America that that from that central and and the, the states in Canada. Yeah. 18 out of 325. What is up? The East gets one. <laughs> I know, I know. There's 325 and we've got one. It's at a least the West, one. At least the West has got about 10 that you can you know, take a stab at at different parts of the West. But oh, here yeah. we have our one. Yeah. But, but if it's you're okay. somewhere, somewhere in the Southwest, you get a, you get a number of a little yeah. extra uh, ones that come just up into the, the lower states in the Southwest. Seeing the Allen's hummingbird and the Anna's hummingbird, love seeing those. Um, Anna's truly one of my favorites, and I have to confess, I don't have Allen's. I've never seen an Allen's hummingbird. 
wow, it's sounds on like my, we need to take a trip. <laughs> I know it's on my list, but Anna, absolutely, you know that's, that's such a beautiful bird, and that that pinkish gorget, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's actually more like for on them, it's more like a belaclava because it goes over the, the the top of the head, and it's like a you know the face is is and then the throat and those big gorget on the throat, and it's mm-hmm. just a, such a gorgeous uh, bird to see. Oh, absolutely gorgeous! But you, okay. You used a big word, gorget. I know. I I love it. (laughs) Science. I I hope I pronounced it right, too. (laughs) Well, and and a lot of of times people are like, how do you say that word? Especially you just get into birding and you read in a birding book. Well, it's got a gorget um, or a gorget. I I looked up the word and it it stems from a French word called that. See if I get that correct because I was never a French student, but the gorget. I like that. Which means throat. I think I'm going to start calling it the gorget it's all gorget. the time now. <laughs> but so many hummingbirds, well, and it's the males, right, that really have that beautiful gorget that is just shiny and pops. And it's just, I think it's mostly just to tell the ladies, but, but me, um, look at me. Yeah. Right? But on the Anna, she's actually got a little one, too. She's one of the few females. She actually has a little red gorget or pinkish red gorget. Yeah, (laughs) gets a little bit in there, but it's not as much as the male. No, gosh, no. Different colors on those throats really help to to highlight which species you're looking at. And, you know, the Anna's is such a cool one. It is probably if you're a a West Coast person, you know, anywhere from, you know, all the way through New Mexico, all the way up to British Columbia along the coast and in the coastal areas. It is there, and it's one that you can see year round uh, mm-hmm. in most of those areas. Which it is another bird that's kind of extended its range as the uh, more and more people have put out feeders, and and it's moved steadily farther north all the time. You know, we <laughs> we did our very first episode, Beast of a Bird, the hummingbirds, mm-hmm. Anna's. Holy cow! This is one of those examples, like you said, that Anna's has been slowly moving further up that west coast and becoming more of a year-round bird well they're overwintering and in more and more areas and all of the bird study data that we see people getting on ebird and just logging the birds in their backyard that they see on a regular basis or even semi-regular basis but all that data and all these other different kinds of bird counts that people go out and do and enter that data we're seeing more and more of those birds staying year-round yeah. What what a tough little bird. These tiny, tiny little hummingbirds. Yeah, it is one of the smaller hummingbirds. It is a tiny little sucker. So, And it's interesting, yeah, because basically in the early 1900s, this bird probably didn't go much farther north than Southern California, maybe middle of California at the most. So it has expanded its range all the way up through British Columbia. And, and again, like you're saying, Brian, it's, it's a year-round year-round bird. So how cool is that? I mean, how much fun would it be to be able to have your hummingbird feeder out year-round? Another thing that we're losing out here in the East. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're still waiting. We're still waiting for the ruby throated to come through. And the Anna's is actually, some of the Anna's hummingbirds have been nesting and you probably already have babies coming off the nest already. So, oh man, just how cool, how cool would that be? Have hummingbirds nesting in your yard. And then there's my other favorite, and that's the black chinned. It's, mm, yeah. it's a kind of a you see it. I, I, it's not totally Rocky Mountains, but it's it's a not as coastal. It, it pull it back in towards the east from the coast and, and run up the Rocky Mountains from north to south. And and uh, it's it to me, it's kind of it kind of reminds me of being 
doppelganger. That's a ah, doppelganger of the ruby throne. You know, it's not the gorget's a different color, uh, but I bet I can guess what color that would be. Yes, the black gen hummingbird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a but it, the behavior and, and things like that just reminds me when I see it when I'm out west. It, it's uh, kind of the doppelganger of our ruby throat. Oh, I've loved being able to see them in Texas. The black chen's down there, and that black—it's not truly a black black. It's like this super deep purple. But you get it in the right light, you get little flashes of that super dark purple, and then mm-hmm. but other black looking. But other times you get it. In just the right light, the phenomenon of the gorget, you don't always see the color. It's a trick of the light. It's like a Mm -hmm. prism. The broad-tailed. Yeah. That's a a cool little hummingbird, too. Yeah, it actually runs up through the, the Rocky Mountains. I think I saw my mm-hmm. first one in Colorado. Cool, and we're walking down a trail along a beautiful little uh, mountain stream, and we heard this metallic-sounding buzz. I, I, it's hard to describe, but it's just this, this like, what is that? And uh, oh, I, you yeah. know, I wasn't familiar with it at the time, and sure enough, we looked up, and here is a broad-tailed hummingbird doing a courtship flight, which uh, all oh, our hummingbirds are so cool. One of the things you can have a lot of fun with is look into what the, the each hummingbird kind of does a unique courtship flight. You know, the our ruby throated here in the east does a big, huge, elevated Y up and down, one back and forth in front of it, the female. Uh, the Anna's does an amazing. They fly literally gets right in front of the female, and they they point themselves to the sun so that their gorget is just brilliant colored. And then they fly straight up for like 130 feet, and then they come flying down really fast, <laughs> and then they stop on a dime right in front of the female again. So I got to watch it, that out west one time. Did you? I, that yeah, was I loved phenomenal. It. Yeah, because yeah. they go so high, you're like, I, it's tiny little bird. Yeah, and I'm like, I can barely. I, many times yeah. I'd lose it until it came back down, and they just boom, dead stop. I'm like. <laughs> From zero to 60 in an instant. Yeah. Yeah. And from 60 to zero in an instant. (laughs) (laughs) Again, lots of, lots of cool things to see and do with hummingbirds. So let's talk a little bit about how do you get hummingbirds in your backyard? What, what are the things that we need to think about in regards to attracting hummingbirds and, and seeing lots of activity in our backyard? Yeah, John, it is that springtime and we do get those regular questions (laughs) every year, kind of that nectar FAQ. What's that nectar ratio? You know, do I have to boil it? What kind of sugars can I use? Doesn't it have to be red? <laughs> you notice we laugh every time this comes up because you and I have, I, if we had a dollar for every time we've answered all these mm-hmm, frequently mm-hmm. asked questions, we'd be rich people. <laughs> Indeed. But you know what? That's what all the Wild Birds Unlimited stores are for. So you go yeah. to you talk to your local experts in your your market. They've got all those answers for you. They've got all the all the products you you could ever want to attract these birds in. But hey, let's let's just share some of those. Four to one. You just remember that four to one. You got five fingers on your hand. Most of that is water. One part <laughs> sugar, right? I just came up with that. Uh, <laughs> anything that's going to help your brain remember, right? <laughs> I like that, Brian. So the thumb is the sugar, and your four fingers are the water. If you just take a cup of water. And you take a quarter cup of sugar and you just stir that together till it's dissolved. You can heat it up a little bit if you want, but you don't have to boil it unless you really feel like, I like that question. Well, you have to boil it to, to kill all the impurities, right? Well, if you're taking your drinking water and you're concerned about impurities, we have a bigger question on the on the table 
than for your hummingbirds. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually equals 20%. The bottom line is the history of the four parts water to one part sugar is been around forever. It works perfectly. Mm-hmm. The hummingbirds seem to thrive on it. There's no reason. We don't want to be using organic sugar. We don't want to be using brown sugar. We don't want to be using honey or any other type of sweetener. Those can actually have downsides and, and can actually, in, in some cases, endanger the hummingbird. Just plain old everyday table sugar and water makes the best nectar as close to what natural nectar can be. Right. So just plain white table sugar. So nectar, absolutely the number one way to get these birds coming into your backyard. Now, one of my more fun ways, they love water. My gosh, how yes. much fun is it to have a mister or a dripper in your backyard? And and they love to, to leaf bathe, bathe. So if you can get yourself a little mister, there's a lot of different products out there that put a little mist and you aim it toward a, a shrub or a bush that's got a lot of leaves. And it's so cool to watch the hummingbird go up and flutter right up against that leaf and leaf bathe. I've, I've got a kind of a, a parallel to that in the sense that I've got a fountain. Uh, it, it's like a big clay pot. And the front side of it, the way the water cascades over the front side of it to go down to another reservoir, second reservoir, uh, it literally cascades down the front of this fountain. And the hummingbirds love it. And they'll come right up against it and and, and lay right up against that clay pot where the water's cascading down and they'll just sit there and take in essence a leaf bath in that fountain it's really cool so That's water cool. is absolutely another great way to, to draw these birds in you know john i have another natural way to help attract hummingbirds into your yard and uh, a lot of times people are not really excited about under the eaves you start getting into uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know where i'm going i with know this, where right? you're going yeah yeah spider webs let if you let the spiders be you know, you don't want to walk out your door and walk your face into a spider web. Yeah, no one likes that. But up in the corners, if you can leave some spider webs and let the spiders do what they do, hummingbirds, they love eating insects and they love spiders and spider eggs. They love to eat those. They pick them up with their bill. But then the other cool part is spider silk. Those webs are actually one of the main components of a hummingbird's nest. Yeah, I used to have a lot of fun with the school kids when I worked at the nature centers when you talk about, you don't like spiders? No! Well, then you don't <laughs> like hummingbirds because without spiders, you wouldn't have any hummingbirds. Okay, well, let's uh, let's move on, Brian. Mm-hmm. Covered hummingbirds. We've got to spend a few minutes talking about Orioles. Oh, the other nectar specialist. <laughs> really sweet deal right there. I love when those Orioles are coming in. I love to hear their singing and their chatter. Yeah. So melodic, so whistly, and, and so many different <laughs> ones. It's so agitated when they <laughs> chatter. It's like, whoa, what did I do to tick you off? <laughs> <laughs> they, they just go through all sorts of emotions. They're not yeah, afraid to yeah. express themselves, right? There you go. There you go. Orioles have been more and more routine in people's backyards in the last probably three to five years than, than I can ever remember. It was the exception to the rule uh, for somebody to get an Oriole coming to a feeder. It, I know people, myself, I tried for years. I probably tried for four or five years 
putting out oranges and grape jelly and nectar feeders specifically for an Oriole and that type of thing and just got nothing. And it's just been a right in the last three to four years that they seem to be catching on. They mm-hmm. seem we maybe we hit critical mass and they finally have figured <laughs> out that, wow, that's a feeder. And I like oranges when I come back from the, the tropics. And oh, by the way, that grape jelly is my all time favorite. Oh, and yes. I'm going to start hitting these feeders in the backyard. So, you know, it's again, it's it's still probably a small percentage of all the folks that are, are out there and trying to feed birds that are, are actually getting Orioles. But I would absolutely tell people to keep trying more and more. And, and again, our, our eastern species, our, our orchard and our Baltimore are, are becoming more and more uh, used to, to hitting feeders, mm-hmm. as are western species, our Scots and our Bullocks and, and uh, Hooded and, and oh, yeah. that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, those Orioles have already been in some of the south and western areas for a month or two and hitting some feeders. Uh, I know in Southern California area, just those hooded warblers um, actually started hitting feeders about a month earlier than usual this year. And I think part of that was just some of the, the weather and some of the habitat. So really, really neat to see these birds coming into the different foods. And, you know, John, one of those questions we're always getting about Oriole nectar. They drink nectar when they come back, yeah, right? Yeah. But what's the ratio? <laughs> and we laugh at this one, too, because, again, we've done extensive looks into this and the research and everything else. And it's amazing how it's all over the place, depending on who made the recommendation, when it was made, that type of thing. Yeah. Everything that we found, number one. We already talked about just kind of those nectar flowers and the percent sugars in them in in the bushes and the trees. And the Orioles predominantly are feeding on the nectar flowers of trees um, or big vines. Uh, It's just where they they naturally forage up high. And uh, but they also come to hummingbird feeders. And that ratio for hummingbird feeders, what was that on the hand? Four fingers, one thumb, (laughs) four to one. Uh, And Orioles naturally come to our hummingbird feeders already. So four to one, keep it simple. And the nice part is if you have a tray feeder for an Oriole, there are specific Oriole feeders for nectar where the hole is a little bit bigger. So they don't have to fight the hummingbird uh, feeder, the tiny little holes. So it's a little bit bigger to accommodate for their bill so they can drink and lap up that nectar. Yeah. And again, our Western species, uh, everything you recommend for the East is exactly parallel for any of the birds that are out West. And one of my favorites is is the Bullocks. Yeah. And again, it's kind of the doppelganger in many ways and truly the doppelganger of the the Baltimore. Uh, They were actually one species at at one time. They brought them together uh, as uh, one species back in, I think, 1973 or somewhere in Ireland there as the Northern Oriole, because uh, they were thinking since they, you know, where the, the two Eastern and Western species meet, they were interbreeding and, and producing young. So they thought, well, it's probably just one species, uh, maybe a, a subspecies of each other. Uh, but then they decided to do some genetic testing and oops, they're not <laughs> related at all, or at least not that closely related. So the, to, to they split them back out. I think that was in the mid nineties. They split them back out into the two separate Bullocks in Baltimore. So the Bullocks is, is very much a doppelganger of, of our uh, uh, Baltimore here in the East. And again, they all make the hanging nest and they all come to the feeders and, and do all the same things together. Oh yeah. Uh, they're, 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 the Bullocks is really a cool one in the sense of <laughs> it's kind of a, Kind of a downside of the bird, but not really. They're one of the few birds. You know, we have monarch butterflies. So the monarchs go to Mexico 
and, you know, congregate and overwinter in trees on the coastal areas of, of Mexico and huge, well, used to be in huge numbers. Oh, and phenomenal to see something like that. Yeah. And, and most birds are not able to eat monarchs because of the milkweed they eat. It puts a alkaloid toxin into their blood system or into their bodies. And a bird literally eats them and they, 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 they can't digest them and they throw it back up and that type of thing. So they learn very quickly not to eat monarchs. Well, guess what? The bullocks. Orioles can do that. <laughs> and so guess where they spend the winter? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Black-headed grosbeaks and, and bullocks orioles are two birds that can actually go down to that roosting, the winter roost of the monarch caterpillars and, and take them on. So anyway, uh, Scott's Oriole, well, another one of the mm, cool ones oh, I've yeah. had a chance to see. And, and uh, they're neat because of just their beautiful lemon lemon color and, and black lemon and black color. Oh, so strikingly beautiful yeah. with those two colors together. You know, John, we talked a little bit about what are some of those things you can do to attract hummingbirds beyond just some food things. And Orioles are similar. There are some specific foods or nectar we talked about, but one of those natural things you can do in your yard, you already touched on that. The Orioles eat a lot of caterpillars and actually in your yard, if you can refrain from spraying, some pesticides because a lot of times folks want to knock out the caterpillars in their yard, those things that might eat on some of the leaves of plants. But Orioles actually are very sensitive to the spraying uh, of insecticides, pesticides in the yard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you want to, that's one of those things, natural habitat wise, to help attract the Orioles in is try to refrain from doing that. And that'll give you one of those natural food attractant scenarios. Also, Besides putting nectar out, you want to touch on some of those? Yeah, absolutely. Oranges, you may have, I think I've already mentioned it, but oranges and, and grape jelly, uh, boy, the combination. It seems like it's interesting. The, the nectar is definitely a draw, uh, but as are the oranges. And again, these are these are two things that the birds are feeding on in Central America, you know, when they're in their overwintering locations. They're feeding on tree nectars. They're feeding on fruits that are on trees and, and that type of thing. So when they first come back, and that's just, that's the key to this whole thing, you got to have this stuff out before they ever show up. It has to be waiting on them because they still have, if you will, I, I just kind of say they still have a taste for it. You know, they've, they've still had a, you know, they haven't been that far gone from the, the overwintering grounds. And so they get back here and find, oh, my gosh, there's fruit, there's nectar. Woohoo! And, uh, and throw in a mix of grape jelly and the grape jelly long term it's i i think you know it's not universal but for a lot of us it seems like the grape jelly is what continues to attract them if they're nesting in the area and they're staying with you the whole summer it seems like their go-to after a while is simply the grape jelly they don't hit the nectar as much they don't hit the oranges as much but having all three of them out and ready to go before those birds ever get back to your area is key to success in getting them to come mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you want to throw live mealworms into the mix, um, they really go. start hitting those when the babies, when all of those eggs start to hatch. And when they have the nestlings in the nest, those babies are getting fed insects. And live mealworms is a great supplement to that as well. But I totally agree with you, John. Grape jelly seems to be the mainline food from the time they arrive while they're here and all the way even into that migration when they're going back. All right, Brian, man, we've had a lot of sweet talk today, haven't we? <laughs> Indeed we have. I think it's about time to wrap up. On behalf of all of us at Wild Birds Unlimited, we thank you for joining us for this portion of Nature-Centered Podcast, all about the hummingbirds and orioles, a really sweet deal. 
So please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Yeah, and please plan to join us next time when we plan to talk about pollinators, bees, butterflies, and other insects that make a big difference in your own backyard for you and the birds. So as always, until then, we're going to let nature be our guide. Please take care and be safe. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nature Centered. To subscribe to this podcast, for show notes, or to connect with the Wild Birds Unlimited store nearest you, visit wbu.com slash podcast. Until we meet again, take some time to relax, enjoy the birds, get out in your backyard, and stay nature-centered. <laughs>